1: Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button.
0: From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer, coming up on this week's show Lessons about Life, Love, and Kappa Chow from Louis C.K.'s Pootie Tang.
1: Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme. Inspired by Pootie Tang, we were all ready to discuss movies in which people are attacked by gorillas. But Matt, you were a little concerned the pro gorilla lobby would come after us and, you know, accuse us of anti simian bias. That would not do. So instead, we're going to look at movies that were directed by stand up comedians turned filmmakers.
0: Okay, so let's get to Q Shots. Our theme this week again is stand-up comedians turn directors, inspired by Louis C.K., famous stand-up comedian, turned director, turned television auteur. Allison, before we get to our picks here, is there anything we want to say in a general sense? I thought it was kind of interesting to look at it this way, personally. As I was making a list, thinking about it, watching these movies, I was wondering, how is stand-up comedy as a training ground for directing? Is it a good training ground? Does it give you skills you can use as a director? Or does it not? Or perhaps is it both?
1: That's an interesting uh, approach, especially since stand-up is more and more recently so personal. You know, there's like such a tendency lately towards that direction in stand-up, which has always been a part, but uh, more so now. And I think that That maybe offers an interesting angle to filmmaking, Mm -hmm. but stand-up is ultimately a solo act. It is about standing on a stage and... It is about people liking you or mm-hmm. the persona that you put out there. And filmmaking is collaborative. No matter you know how much you want to take on every role, you have to work with other people. You have to work with actors. You have to work with studios, which doesn't always end up so good for a lot of these people who've made movies, including the, the one that we're going to talk about for our main review. So I think that there is a bit of a clash there in terms of, of the kind of natural solo act that is a stand up show versus working with a lot of people to make a film.
0: I agree that there are certain I think there are certain skills that you probably learn as a comedian that serve you well as a director and then there are probably some skills that you don't learn as a stand up that you're probably going to need as a director that you'll need to learn somewhere else. Certainly as you said the idea of collaboration. I mean one of the things that is so interesting about stand up especially as you said as it's being practiced now is it's this really personal venue of artistic expression? I mean, you can say whatever you want. I mean, it's real like freedom of speech. It's real, true personal expression, and there's no uh, there's no money men. You know, one can t- no one can tell you you don't have the budget to tell that story in your stand up. You know, no one can say well we can't afford to shoot that. Or we don't have the number of days in our budget to achieve that story. There, are, I guess, are certain limitations. You have to work within a certain amount of time as a stand-up. You've only got X number of minutes. You've got to keep the audience paying attention somehow. It's not like you can just ramble for 40 minutes and not tell a joke. Probably, if you don't, at a stand-up comedy show, somebody's going to get upset. But on the other hand, you're limited only by your imagination and your, and your writing. And so it is much more of a direct, personal Venue, But on the other hand, that probably serves you pretty well when you become a director, right? If you are really passionate, if you have a voice, if you have a vision and you're willing to work to execute it, uh, the odds are less likely maybe that you'll get trampled on. But then again, in the case of our Listener's Choice Review, maybe it depends on how much uh, power you have or how experienced you are and you're still open to studio meddling and trampling. I guess it it depends. So on the one hand – the two have almost nothing in common on the other hand i feel like there are there are certain connections and i know one of my three picks i think i'm going to discuss this a little more because i think although i had never thought about it this way until this week and thinking about this podcast i think you can absolutely read it as a statement about stand-up and that background versus directing and the skills that's required
1: yeah um and it it is also really interesting to see someone who's who you have a real personal sense of in terms of their comedy because you've listened to their stand-up, to see what kind of film they choose to make. Mm. Because it's not always in the line of the comedy that they have done on stage. Very true. Uh, You know, I... um, Something like Sleepwalk with Me is definitely like a very direct kind of interesting translation of a stand-up act turned one-man show turned film.
0: Right. We but, mentioned that on the last show. That was Mike Birbiglia's new movie. Right.
1: Which is on VOD right now. Right. Um, but then something like uh, you know Chris Chris Rock made uh, I think I Love My Wife, which, if I'm not mistaken, is a
0: remake of a Romare film. Very. It's a loose remake, but yes, yeah, yeah it's based on a Romare film, and apparently he's a big Romare fan, is what he says. But.
1: Yeah. Or uh, Takeshi Kitano, who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, started a career as a stage comedian and then has made some very interesting films all over the place, including some very famous violent gangster films. Right. Uh, you know, that or Larry David made uh, Sour Grapes, which is a film that I think even he was not particularly happy about, but mm. that was maligned, like widely maligned by many people. So, it, you know, before he went on to make this uh a tv show that was much more in his own voice well he'd
0: already made Seinfeld Seinfeld yeah but to go on to uh yeah he went back to television he tried film found that it you know it didn 't work for him and he then went back to sort of almost like a hybrid of stand up because he 's playing himself and he 's speaking really in his own voice right he 's clearly the author of the show and he's got i don't think he's got a lot of people telling him what to do
1: right so it it is really interesting yeah. to see these ventures, whether successful or failed, mm-hmm. I think
0: in the context of someone's stand up career the one other general thing I wanted to say before we get to our picks is. As we're talking here, I think what we're finding in some cases are stand-ups who are also storytellers, because storytelling is so crucial to stand-up, and it's certainly crucial to filmmaking, and it's interesting because, you know, there is, you can be a stand-up by telling jokes, you know, by telling a hundred jokes in 20 minutes, just joke, 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 joke. And I've seen comedians like that who are great. I mean, we could name some, you know, like, I don't necessarily think of, like, Stephen Wright as a great storyteller. But he's a great joke teller and he's hilarious. But that's his sort of thing. Would I necessarily want to see his directorial debut? I don't know. I'd have a hard time imagining it. But then again on the other hand like a guy like Louis CK I mean his stand up are there these stories you know these wonderful stories so I can see the connection even though the movie we're about to discuss is not necessarily the most brilliantly narrative driven film of all time I look at him now at least and I can see a connection there all right so should we get to our picks you want to you want to go first I'm <laughs> um, sure
1: Uh, My first one is actually an extremely personal film, so that'll fit in well to this discussion. It's Jojo Dancer, Your Life is Calling, 1986 film directed by Richard Pryor and starring Richard Pryor. It's available on a service that you might, I've never seen as publicized, but you might actually have it if you are a Comcast subscriber. It's Xfinity Stream Picks, which is... A service they seem to have, uh, Comcast is offering as an added value. You can also subscribe to it for $5 a month if you already have TV through them. But you you should look if you have like their triple play or whatever their equivalent is, you might have free access to this. So it's streaming there. Um, Yep, you know, Richard Pryor has always said this film is not autobiographical, but you know, when you watch it yeah. and you see that it is a film in which he plays a successful edgy stand up comedian who has a terrible incident in which he's badly burned while freebasing cocaine, you start to think maybe he's not being entirely upfront in saying that. He wrote this film with Rocco uh Urbiski and Paul Mooney, and it's Basically, as far as you can read it against what he says, the story of his life from growing up in a brothel in the Midwest to slowly establishing himself as a comedian, finding his voice going from kind of more... Standard joke telling to something, you know, that examines race and that uh, pushes boundaries, engages the crowd sometimes in aggressive ways, and also about how he gets caught up in womanizing and drug abuse and kind of falls apart. And the framing of this is that uh, JoJo Dancer has this incident where he's at home, he's trying really hard to resist the urge to get high. He ends up at one point, like, crawling in the carpet looking for crack rocks. Uh, and then he, you know, having vowed that he's not going to do this again, he, he, finds, he finds some drugs, he pulls his pipe out of the out of the fireplace where he tried to burn it, and then he ends up in the hospital because of this incident that we see later. But he, basically, his, like, alter ego, his soul, maybe, climbs out of his body and offers him this tour through his life, basically to urge him to clean up and change his life. And it's particularly poignant, Knowing Richard Pryor's kind of story, how successful he ever is at cleaning up, but it's 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 really interesting in terms of him telling his own story. Oh. get off of that lawn. Yes, Mama. It's also, I'd say, only sometimes aiming to be funny. Uh, it's uh, other times, it's you know the details are so harsh and so rough that it's not necessarily it's not necessarily comedy. But it as a kind of look at him as a person and uh, at his growth as a comedian and how that's paralleled by. The mess he starts making of his personal life—it's really, really interesting. So uh, that is Jojo Dancer. Your life is calling. Uh, Richard Pryor's lone scripted directorial effort, and it is available for streaming on Xfinity Stream Picks. Wow,
0: that is a that is a cool pick. I have never seen that movie. I've heard have you we've talked about I think it. We before. We have mentioned it before. I
1: had not seen it. I finally got to see it in prep for this. Sounds and pretty I was, interesting. I was glad to. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, my pick—not quite as personal, but uh, I think it speaks to. This was the one I was going to discuss that, as I mentioned before, I think speaks to um, the divide between the stand-up comedian as the artist who can do whatever he wants and the director who has to work with other people. And it's the 1968 film The Producers, directed by Mel Brooks, who was a stand-up comedian. He worked in the Catskills and uh, became a joke writer on television, and that went on well enough. He became a... And then He became a popular uh, performer with Carl Reiner. They had their whole 2,000-year-old man routine, and eventually he became a director in his own right. And The Producers was his directorial debut. Now... Here, it, I, like I said, I've never thought of the producers in this way. I just usually think of it as a really wonderfully funny movie. It's one of the funniest movies of all time. But when you think about it, it is sort of about the lunacy of the collaborative creative process because everything that these producers do is defined by money. It's all about money. Now, in this case, they're not exactly altruistic artists. They're greedy. They have a scheme to make money off of producing But I think there is a way to look at it as a commentary on this idea, because not only do they have to get the money and everything that they do and anything anyone does, in this case, it's the theater business, but could be read as film as well, is based on money, but it's also based on the people you work with. They have to get the money, but then they also have to find a writer and get him to agree to uh, give them uh, his stage play. And this screenwriter is crazy. He's also a Nazi. And they have to get a director, and the director's kind of kooky. They need a star. The star is this crazy, whacked-out hippie guy. So I just – it's interesting how you could read the whole thing as almost like a expression of frustration. As a writer, as a stand-up, I have complete control over what I want to say and do. But then when I move into Broadway or film or whatever it is, now I have to go speak to a writer. I have to go speak to a director. I have to go beg little old ladies for money, all these sorts of things. <laughs> you know, not many people knew it, but the Fuhr was a terrific dancer. Really, I never dreamed
1: that... That is because that you were taken in by it for them, to
0: Allied propaganda. Such filthy Lies, they told lies. But nobody ever said a bad word about Winston Churchill, did they? No, when was winning? gas. rotten painting, rotten. He could, there was a painter. He could paint an entire apartment in One afternoon, two coats. I don't necessarily think anyone thinks about these things when they watch the producers nor necessarily should they, but I do think maybe it's there a little bit and I think that's kind of interesting. I always think of myself as like this average viewer, but then I talk to people and they're like, "Oh yeah, I've never really seen. I've seen space balls." You know, like Mel Brooks, I grew up watching like every Mel Brooks movie. Like he was an icon to me, but I wonder if he's holding up that status, Allison. And I'm maybe a little concerned that uh, he's not, that maybe he seems a little passe, a little cheesy. I don't know. So I want to make sure if you haven't seen the producers, the original producers, God forbid you should watch <laughs> the movie. The Broadway musical of the producers was great, but the movie was not. So if you haven't seen the producers, please, please go out of your way and find it. It is available on Netflix streaming right now.
1: Okay, well, my next pick is um, A New Leaf. It's the 1971 movie from Elaine May who, you know, was a comedian who, whose stage partner was Mike Nichols, who went on to have his own career yep. as a director of Made the Graduate, Catch Me Two Closer. Uh, New Leaf is available on Amazon Instant and I think it was not available on DVD for a while. It just got a re-release from Olive. So it's, you know, it's one, two. Unavailable for a while. Yeah. So uh, exciting that it's it's all available now. Um, this was Elaine May's directorial debut. She also starred in it. And uh, it was had a problematic time with the studio, which became a pattern with her work, most notoriously with Ishtar, you know, the famous flop. But this is a, it's a really charming and some uh, unexpectedly dark and yet war- really warm uh, comedy. It stars Walter Matthau as Henry Graham, who is just a horrible person. He is a confirmed bachelor, a wealthy, he's inherited a lot of wealth, which he's just frittered away despite being warned multiple times by his financial advisor that he was living well beyond his means. So he runs completely out of money and decides that he needs to marry into it. And he's also, he borrows money from his uncle who hates him. Uh, and so he has like a particular timeline that he needs to marry by. He needs to marry in like six weeks. Uh, and he thinks this is impossible. And he's not particularly interested. One of the things that's maybe kind of charming about his character is he has no interest in women, not because he has another preference, but because he just is only really interested in himself and in indulging in having nice things, including a Jack- I think it's a Ferrari that can't really it's a beautiful car that's constantly getting towed to, to be worked on. He can't drive it without it breaking down, but he loves it. So he meets Henrietta, who is played by Elaine May, who is this mousy, clumsy heiress who is a botanist and her great love is botany. Uh, And she wants to discover a new variety of fern. He courts her, uh, despite being pretty disgusted by her. He calls her a primitive or feral. She has no taste in wine. She's constantly knocking things over onto his carpet, which he adores. She has giant glasses. Um, She loves talking about plants. He plans to murder her quite earnestly, and yet finds himself slowly warming to her, uh, despite his aversion to all things that are not basically luxury goods. And the film really manages to have this dark undertone in that while they're, you know, while he's courting her, he's reading up on books of toxicology so that he can poison her, but manages to make his transformation. He turns over a new leaf as the title implies, by pretty sweet, mostly because uh, Henrietta is so unguarded and vulnerable there's a scene in which she manages to have put her nightgown on incorrectly so one of her arms is inside the nightgown and she can't eat dinner and he helps her try to figure out that her head is in the armhole and that's why this is problematic henrietta where uh, where is your other arm
0: it's in the nightgown it's a grecian style nightgown it it fits over one shoulder and the other arm goes inside it's very uncomfortable I can barely move my head all the
1: way around. It's fine. I uh, I just think you have your head through the armhole. If you just stand up for a minute. That's it. There you are. I think... You see, you have your head through the armhole. Oh. Now, pick your arm up. Uh, uh, no, not that one. And the scene goes on for quite a while, and it's both like ridiculous in that neither, like they're struggling over... That you know, putting on this dress the proper way, like she's a child, and yet it's really weirdly sweet in that she you know appreciates it so much, and he is kind of touched by this need to to take care of her. So that's A New Leaf. It's available for streaming on Amazon.
0: All right. Well, you're shaming me left and right this week because I haven't seen A New Leaf either. So it's another one that I've always wanted to check out, but uh, it's been hard to see. It's been hard to see, but I'm not going to make excuses here, Allison. I'm just going to say I haven't seen it yet, but. You're encouraging me to make sure that I make time to see it very soon. My next pick is from 1973. It's uh, available on Netflix, and it's a little movie called Sleeper, directed by one Woody Allen, who, of course, got his start as a stand-up, and a writer, writing first writing four other stand-ups, and then finally working up the courage to become a, a performer himself. And then he, of course, became uh, really famous as a stand-up, and then basically just... Quit stand up and never did it ever again. Uh, he went from being one of the most most popular stand-ups in the country to just never doing it again and moving into film. Clearly, that was what he always wanted to do. And um, sleeper in this context is kind of interesting to talk about because you know it doesn't bear a ton of hallmarks of. You know, it's not JoJo Dancer. This is not a personal story of a a man struggling to be a stand-up comic and struggling with substance abuse. There's very little on the surface that we could connect to Woody Allen's life as a New York intellectual comedian. But maybe we could find something of him in this story of a man who is frozen. He, (laughs) He goes into the hospital for an ulcer operation and never wakes up they have a there's a complication and then he's put into suspended animation much like the classic demolition man and that's (laughs) there's a lot of parallels that could be drawn between the two masterpieces and then he wakes up in the future like a couple hundred years in the future in this sort of weird dystopian future where the government is sort of uh, big brother-ish and uh, freedom has been suppressed and he gets involved with kind of like the underground revolution movement well he's fully recovered Except for a few minor kinks. Has he asked for
1: anything special? Yes, morning for breakfast. Uh, he requested something called wheat germ, organic honey and tiger's milk.
0: <laughs> oh yes, those are the charmed substances that some years ago I felt to contain life-preserving properties.
1: You mean there was no deep fat? No steak or cream pies or hot
0: fudge? Those were thought to be unhealthy. Precisely the opposite of what we now know to be true. Incredible. So, the part that I, I guess you could sort of look at and compare to stand-up comedy is just this idea that he's sort of wandering through the world as a kind of outsider and observer and commentator. You know, the thing about uh, Sleeper is that, as different and crazy as the world is, it's not all that different, and that you could potentially say that it's all a one, just one big commentary on life in the seventies, not life in the twenty-two seventies, perhaps so again another movie that i imagine most of the people listening have probably already heard but i don't i like i don't know i am feeling out of touch lately allison i'm feeling (laughs) old and out of touch and i i guess i just want to know that people are watching these movies that mean a lot to me so you know if i'm wrong and if every person under the age of 25 has already seen sleeper and and seen the early woody allen movies don't listen to me but if you haven't Then check it out. I was talking with somebody who's a little younger than us recently, and he loves early Woody Allen, but he says he has a hard time convincing people to watch early Woody Allen. Like, they'll watch the later Woody Allens. Like, they've seen Crimes and Misdemeanors, and they've seen, you know, even Annie Hall, right, Right. and even Manhattan. Like, that's as as far back as they go. You know, whereas the old stereotype was always, why doesn't he make movies like the funny ones? I feel (laughs) like I'm starting to get a sense that for some people he's almost not that guy. He's the guy who made the serious movies. And that the early comedies are almost seen as sort of like an uh, aberration, an aberration, yeah, or, him or out. immature, or yeah. immature, yeah, exactly. And they are immature in a, a delightful way. So I guess I'm I'm really curious about uh, whether some of our listeners feel that same way. But either way, it is a great movie. It holds up really well. You know, I was watching it again last night and seeing all these sort of how much you know, Idiocracy is clearly kind of inspired by it. So again, it's it's sleeper by Woody Allen, and it's available on Netflix.
1: All right. Well, my last pick is a more recent film. Uh, It is World's Greatest Dad, 2009 film, currently available streaming on Netflix, directed by Bobcat Goldthwait, who, you know, started off as a stand up and then became uh, kind of, uh, you know, for better or worse, infamous, infamous for his roles in the Police Academy films, uh, and now Allison will do her impression
0: of Bobcat Goldthwaite. Go! I don't have
1: one. Oh, I'm sorry. No, um, too bad. I've never. I don't know if I've ever seen a Police Academy film. What? I know. What? Calm down. Well, I know what
0: the listeners' choice options <laughs> yeah, you, are going to be next week. Right? Do you Police have Police Academy a... <laughs> Two, Police Academy Four, and Police Academy Three? Uh, thank you. In that order. Yeah. Um, do you have a uh, Bobcat
1: Goldthwaite impression to offer? No. Okay. God no. Good. Um, so haunted. His career is kind of haunted by. <laughs> by uh this character um but he said the character's name
0: was Zed. yeah let's give him let's give him some respect
1: he even like uh has talked about how he had to you know while doing stand-up and was expected to do the voice and all right. that he had to like basically cut it off one day and a lot of people did not like that where right. he had to just be like that's past that's <laughs> dead baby exactly Zed's dead. Um, so you know he uh had made an early film called shakes the clown uh but You know, his more recent career, which has been a group of really dark comedies that have all, I think, premiered at Sundance, have been really interesting. And World's Greatest Dad is my my favorite of the bunch. The other two are Sleeping Dogs Lie and God Bless America. And uh, World's Greatest Dad stars Robin Williams as Lance Clayton. A high school English teacher who dreams of being a famous writer, and who is a single father to a fifteen-year-old boy named Kyle, played by Daryl Sabara, who is just a terrible little kid. He um, is just awful, and dies in a autoerotic asphyxiation accident, in which, like, they uh, he arranges so that this looks like a suicide to kind of save his child, like posthumously, the embarrassment of uh, being found that way. So he, uh, he writes a suicide letter that uh, ends up getting published in the school newspaper, you know, not his plan. And uh, so many people respond so well to it that it becomes famous, and leads him to kind of go on this road in which he maybe uses his son's death as a way to get more of his writing out under the name of his son. And uh, that's an incredibly great dark premise. And I think showcases Goldthwaite's like sense of humor and ability to make these jokes that are just so out there and potentially offensive. And then also have a really kind of sweet heartfelt uh, core to his film. And I think in this case, beyond just the, the having a whole film based around a faked teen suicide there's also this real interesting approach to the idea of when you're finally able to make your imperfect child you know better kind of remake them after the fact and in which case like uh lance beyond just writing it for him he uh invents um a fondness for bruce hornsby <laughs> um for his child he you know makes him basically like the school kind of takes him up as this martyr as this like person who speaks the truth and uh, I, I think the the film really has a great moment towards the end where he just has to acknowledge like his kid was his kid as he was you know warts and all or maybe mostly warts mr clayton andrew it doesn't seem right does it what doesn't seem right
0: how everyone is acting Like they like Kyle.
1: No, it doesn't.
0: You know what else is weird? What? Kyle's suicide note. In what way? That stuff about being an insignificant molecule, bouncing around in a meaningless, godless universe. Don't take this the wrong way, but... Kyle was a... What? Kind of dumb. (laughs) Ha! No.
1: Kyle was actually... Smart, Andrew. He, you know, he just pretended to be dumb, even around you. So, you know, people wouldn't pick on him. Yeah, maybe. Not- the, the way that the film is so unflinching about that and refusing to soften up Kyle's character is kind of wonderful. And uh, the film also makes a great use of uh, Under Pressure as a musical cue. It's World's Greatest Dad, Bobcat Goldthwaite. Really funny, very dark film uh, available for streaming on Netflix.
0: Okay, and that the biggest fan of that movie you prefer sleeping
1: sleeping dogs lie yeah
0: i do i do but i do like i mean i like the stuff he's doing and i just like the idea that you know he it does he does seem like a guy who's really trying to apply that sort of freedom of expression side of stand-up where you can say anything yeah and trying to find a way in movies to uh to do that. And what's interesting is how that that ends up being like these tiny little independent movies that like no one will finance that he has to like scrounge up the money for and and they're seen by very small amounts of people. I think it's maybe a sad commentary on the way that film works, but uh, I'm glad he's out there doing it, that's yeah. for sure.
1: And I think that his approach of being like, I'm gonna choose the most outrageous premise and then find heart in it mm-hmm. and not have that seem like a cop out is something he does really well. Mm.
0: Okay, well, my last pick, uh, briefly, because we're running out of time here, is Cemetery Junction from 2010, directed by Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant. It's available on Netflix. And uh, here's a little bit more of an obscure choice, because this movie never, or basically never played in theaters in America. And you go, well, how did, like, the movie from the guys who created The Office, their first movie together, anyway, Gervais has made one other movie Uh, with a different collaborator, The Invention of Lying, which uh, is interesting. How did that movie not get released? And I guess probably just because it's, I mean, it's not not a fantastic film, and it's also not really a comedy. It's actually more of a coming-of-age drama, which is kind of interesting. It's about these three teenagers who are growing up in this area of Reading, there is an actual place called Cemetery Junction in the town, in the real town, in the real England. I think that uh, title does suggest a certain amount of sort of like dead-end ism, or fear of, of being dead-ended, and that's, I guess, what's what's kind of interesting in connection with this being a work by Ricky Gervais, is that is actually a theme, when you think about it, that does appear in a lot of his work, this sort of fear of provincialism, uh, when you look at the original Office and you look at even extras to some degree, um, there is this sort of looking down on small-town life... And also a fear of it, like a fear of this is all you're ever going to be, that you're going to wind up working in a paper company or in a factory, and you're going to just work there and work there and work there until you die, and that's your life. And that being the worst possible thing that could happen to anyone, and that's sort of what the the story is about here. Two of the friends, one of them does work in a factory, and the other one has basically quit to start a new job that he sees as his path out of uh, Cemetery Junction, which is to be a door-to-door insurance salesman. And it's, this, it's a strange movie just because it has this really great cast, including Ray Fines and Matthew Good and Ricky Gervais in a small role, but the main characters are these sort of unknown actors. So you have this sort of tension between like these young guys who you don't know, and then every time there's a supporting actor in the film, oh, you go, oh, there's Ray Fines, Oh, there's Matthew Good, Oh, there's Ricky Gervais. But then you kind of constantly are leaving them To focus on these other characters who aren't all that interesting. I mean, it's really not a fantastic movie. I wouldn't say this is like a rush out and you know rent it right away kind of thing. But I'm not asking you to rush out and rent it. It's available on Netflix, and you can stream it anytime (laughs) you want. And I think if you are a fan of The Office and extras and Ricky Gervais's stand-up specials and stuff, I do think it's an interesting uh, part of his sort of oeuvre, and that it is not necessarily overly comic. There there are jokes that the, the Gervaise character is kind of is the father of one of the of the men or the young boys or whatever you want to call him and he provides sort of the comic relief essentially by being this exasperated family man who's his children and his the, the grandmother in the house and everyone just kind of you know rags on him and he takes the abuse and says a lot of sarcastic comments and that's where a lot of the comedy comes from
1: Zapsie, so what are you stupid, idiot? Buy a
0: policy? No. Who's going to pay for your funeral? I've got a few years, yet. Oh,
1: with all that fat round your
0: heart, I know I'm not paying for it. Like you'll still be around when I go. Bury me in the garden if you want, I don't care. Yeah, he buries everything in the garden, old mangle down there, old cooker. I'm not paying the council to take away rubbish. Well, you better start digging hole for him soon, cos I'm not doing it. You won't be alive when I die. You'll all be buried down there with the mangle. That remind me to do that next week, Kath. Dad, buy a policy or I'll be out of work on Monday. Good. You can have me dig your diggy grandmother's grave. I do find it interesting to um, to have a you know a filmmaker or a pair of filmmakers in this case who've always kind of straddled the line a little bit between sort of comedy and also despair. You know, The Office is really funny, but there are moments that are just so pitch black. And the same thing with extras. You know, the life of the extra is incredibly glamorous on the one hand, in that you're standing right next to this multi-millionaire, and on the other hand, it's incredibly pathetic because you know you're making a cup, co- you know, making scale. So uh, they, he's always, they've always kind of played with those ideas, so it's interesting to kind of tip the scales more into drama. And it's not a great film, but I do think it's an interesting one. Cemetery Junction, available on Netflix. We have with us today a man who is so much a part of the culture that he scarcely needs an introduction. Poonie Tang, good to have you here with us. Seventh time. Poonie Tang, you've had incredible success, and you've had it in a variety of fields, music, films, martial arts, pottery. How do you do it? What makes you tick? Uh, well, Bob, I'm a pawn, Sony. Tony. Got my dillies on a pepper tank. I hear that. Now, Pudi, a lot of young artists really say that you are their inspiration. Well, I can't say that they know my brother. What a tie. I understand, though, you got a new movie coming out. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it's called uh, Sign Your Pity on the Runny Kind." <laughs> wow. And who's in it besides yourself? Oh, well, there's, uh, there's Truckee, uh, Bad Bitty, Dirty D, Lacey, JB, uh, Biggie Shorty. And Robert Vaughn. Listener's choice time, and for this episode, listeners said no. They did not want us to investigate the evolution of the female gross-out comedy in Bachelorette. No, they did not want us to consider the evolution of Spanish-language horror in The Devil's Backbone. They wanted us to watch *Pootie Tang. And then, I guess, dance on a street corner for 20 minutes like Wanda Sykes. Yes, it's *Pootie Tang, which really captured the cultural zeitgeist on its initial release in November of 2001. (laughs) You know, time of great uncertainty in America, we're looking for villains, we're looking for heroes, men of courage and trouser accessories, and here comes one to lead us through this dark future, and that man is Pootie Tang, played by Lance Crowther, and uh, in the film, Pootie is basically a modern-day spoof of... Really, I thought of him as kind of this spoof of this exploitation hero, Dolomite, who's played by Rudy Ray Moore in two films, and really, in particular, the Human Tornado, which was the second film, the sequel, whose structure, it really kind of suggests Pootie Tang. You know, he's like the performer by day, or technically, I guess he's the per- performer by night, and then the karate chopping crime fighter by day. And definitely there are some strong parallels, at least structurally, between the two films. Pootie, hero to millions of young kids, is recruited by the evil Lecter Corporation to become their spokesman for their new fast food chain. And when he refuses, he's tricked and his magically powerful belt is stolen. And he's eventually replaced by an evil doppelganger, who I won't spoil who <laughs> plays the doppelganger. because That's one of the good jokes in the film. Definitely. But he is nicknamed Duty Tang. <laughs> Now, one of the writers on The Chris Rock Show, where Pootie Tang originated, was a young and still relatively unknown writer named Louis C.K. He'd worked for Late Night with Conan O'Brien. He'd worked on The Short-Lived Dana Carvey Show, and he also worked on The Chris Rock Show. Nowadays, we know Louis C.K. as this brilliant, independent voice behind his own show on FX, Louis. So, Allison, this is what I want to know. Okay. One, do you see any of the Louis C.K. that would eventually emerge on television in Pootie Tang and... More importantly, did you wadi Ta on the cami Chow, or did you Kama Kama on the Lipa Chai? Uh, I will pass
1: on the second two for now. For now. For now. Fine, Um, fine. In terms of the first question, it's an interesting one. I think that there have always been these two kind of impulses in CK's career, and he's clearly tended towards the personal as he's gone—like, right now, his show, I think— one of the major qualities of it is this sense of this belief in honesty and kind of human connection through mm-hmm. honesty, even as much as it will cause you pain sometimes uh and you know it's so based on his life as a you know divorced father of two who works as a stand up it's just it seems often to be these variations, these slightly surreal sometimes variations on things in his life, in his day-to-day life. And it feels very much like stand-up in that way. Mm -hmm. But I I think that Pootie Tang represents something that you see more maybe in his last show, Lucky Louie on HBO, which played a lot with the the sitcom, like the tropes of a sitcom while kind of challenging them. It was a bit more of this abstract thing. I don't think Lucky Louie worked very well, but you could see the kind of formal experimentation behind it
0: yeah, and let's I, explain briefly cuz I for people who never saw cuz I actually never saw it but I know what it was. It was like a sitcom. It was it was it looked like an old-fashioned sitcom, multi-camera yeah. sitcom with a live Laugh. studio audience. Yeah. Right.
1: Right. But then it would, you know, go in it was on HBO. Right. It would go into this extremely dark, kind of profane material a lot right. of the okay. time. Right. Okay. So it
0: was playing with the form and format of the old-fashioned sitcom and trying to see how it would accommodate modern comedy. Exactly. Eventually. And to play off that contrast and you know, so you, you can understand the uh,
1: kind of interesting aspect to that idea, even if it doesn't yeah, it necessarily an idea whether yeah, or not it doesn't it, work, Right, plays that well, right. uh, you know, and I think that you see maybe some of that in Tang, where you're like, I get, you know, kind of some of the ideas that you're going for here. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily in practice all play out as um, maybe as well as it maybe looked on the page. I think CK talked about how he was essentially fired by the time they got to the edit they like the studio was so not happy with what they had signed on for that. I don't think that this represents his vision as like he originally conceived it. Right. So I think you can see that a bit as well. Of yeah. Just He has said
0: that. Yes. Yeah.
1: It doesn't feel like it's uh, it a is, movie. Well, <laughs> I don't know that it doesn't feel like it's a movie so much as it feels like it's a movie that's been kind of reassembled from pieces Packed to
0: pieces and reassembled yeah. very awkwardly. Exactly. Yeah.
1: You know, even from, I, I think, for me some of the more interesting things are the weird bits of like kind of flights of fancy like the gorilla joke you mentioned before. It's brilliant. It's brilliant and so weird and um or the bit where um he's Trucky, right the narrator yes. like JB Smoove who's also pretty Tang's best friend. Yes. There he narrates the film yes. and in one part narrates and then his character exact. says the exact lines yes. <laughs> to him right. and great that's, bit. yeah it's a great bit it's yep. completely strange it also stylistically doesn't
0: really fit in with anything else that has gone on in the film before no because most of the narration is very straightforward and explanatory and not as a joke it's like literally like this is it's like explaining every single character like we're morons and sometimes like people will he'll say the name of a character right before someone else on screen says it and it's only in that scene where it's played as a laugh. You know, the rest of the movie, it's just really poorly done narration.
1: Right. Like, it's actually filling in, sometimes unnecessarily, or sometimes just because they
0: don't seem to have the film there to, like, right.
1: pull the story along. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. you hadn't seen the movie before. I had not. I had seen it once before. I saw it in the movie theater, and I hated it. And looking at it this week... Start the movie, and I'm laughing hysterically, and I'm like, this movie is way funnier than I remembered. <laughs> and then right around the 15-minute mark, maybe around the time that Wanda Sykes first starts dancing, and I counted how many times she dances in this movie, 623 times, and that is an accurate number. Uh, right around that point, the whole movie for me just kind of deflated, and it really lost me. And when it became a, a, an attempt at a narrative – it just it fell right apart and and then i was going oh this movie is is really pretty dire at times and like you said i think there are some really funny parts i think the first 10 15 minutes of it are brilliant and then it's it's barely a movie after that it's it's i don't know what to call it it's a flim it's not quite a, <laughs> not quite a film it's a flim it's a flim <laughs> you know it's like almost there you know but as you said like he made something he shot something and then it was taken away from him and really kind of crudely assembled. I mean it's really kind of amateurish at times. The just the na- in terms of narrative. I mean there's it's just a real discomfort with storytelling, which is so interesting because as we said, he's such a brilliant storyteller in his standup and now on his show. But then again on the flip side, I could I could throw this out at you just as a, maybe as a knock on him, even though I think he's brilliant and a genius, his show doesn't always have a, you know, a, a standard format like sometimes the stories are really short you know so maybe he's not all that comfortable with long-form storytelling as a a storyteller maybe he works best in small doses in which case making a feature film was not the right venue for him i don't know
1: yeah that's an interesting idea and i think that the show the show louis speaks really much very much to how he wants he's happy to have some bits be like five minutes right have one story be five minutes and then have that be a part of an episode, and then there's a 15 minute other story, right. not necessarily connected. No, it's
0: an anthology series. <clears throat> yeah. Almost.
1: And in fact, like this sometimes it's contradictory. You mm. know, it doesn't, it's not all in one consistent universe sometimes. Uh, and then, well, Pootie Tang doesn't necessarily seem like that consistent a universe either, you could say, but it does seem like it has a struggle between kind of like odd bits and pieces that are actually funnier than the main narrative. Like the main narrative seems sometimes to be dragging the film down.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The story is the worst part of this movie. All the funniest bits have nothing to do with the story. Yeah. It's like the flashback to it's about, it's the the gorilla joke is Chris Rock uh, plays Pootie Tang's father in a very funny flashback Mm -hmm. where Pootie Tang is a little kid and Chris Rock is his stern father And teaching him about the ways of the world, and he has this belt that he uses to constantly smack him. And there's another really funny bit where, as a kid, Pootie Tang is thinking about stealing some apples, and out of nowhere the belt (laughs) smacks him. And then him and, and his buddy are looking around trying to find the dad, and they don't see him anywhere. But somehow he had slapped him. So anyway, he worked in like a factory. It's very Cemetery Junction. He worked in a factory, but he was killed on the job, you know, beat when he was attacked by a gorilla. And then a really fake gorilla suit. Kind uh-huh. of the worst gorilla suit you've ever seen. This is worse than uh, than anything you've ever seen. Just comes out and just mauls Chris Rock. Which and,
1: is... and then they observe there was a third time it had happened in the factory. <laughs> <laughs> like, the factory. Only the third time, though. Like, the factory
0: was, you know, mildly plagued by gorilla accidents. Right. Great. But... And then there's a really funny deathbed scene. All that stuff is great. But, yeah. you know, I mean... Look, this is what happens when you make a narrative film about a character who is unintelligible. That is a sketch comedy character. And a sketch also, a sketch comedy character has yeah.
1: always strained. Uh, many films have strained to come up with a whole feature length
0: worth of material right. for it's a sketch not comedy easy. character. Well, but especially when your character's whole joke is that you no one understands what he's saying, but right. everyone around him kind of does what are we going to do for 75 minutes when we don't understand the character I mean it is kind of funny when he starts talking to Bob Costas and Bob Costas understands him in the beginning of the movie right. but then at a certain point I mean they really make it kind of they open itself up for this interpretation that Bob Costas appears again at the end of the movie and actually it's kind of it's kind of a funny joke because the idea is the whole movie is essentially a clip that he's played for Bob Costas on his talk, talk show right. which is kind of funny but when Bob Costas we come back and he's still doing the same shtick and Bob Costas kind of understands him or uh, at that point it's the bloom is off the rose you know right. it's lost its luster i don't know if you realize this that whole structure is lifted from one of the actual sketches on the Chris Rock show i did not realize Chris that Chris Rock where the Bob Costas character is played by Chris Rock Chris Rock welcomes Pootie Tang as a guest on his show they do an interview they show a clip for the movie, Sign Your Pity on the Runny Time, which is the the movie that we're watching, ostensibly. And then at the end, there's the same joke where he says something in gibberish and finally Chris Gregg goes, what are you talking about? You know, like, <laughs> like and then he says, uh, Capitao on the damn chai? And he's like, oh, okay. You know, like, it's the same exact structure. So even that, which kind of works, was taken from the original material and wasn't yeah. invented for the film.
1: So I wanted to ask you, Matt, I, I felt like Lance, Lance Crowther, who I think is mostly a writer, mm-hmm. I think he's not uh, performing, has not been like the main thrust of his mm-hmm. career. Uh, beyond the fact that his uh, his character is unintelligible, I felt like also... I mean, beyond the main joke of his character being this uh, almost black exploitation satire, right? He's not the most charismatic in the cast by far, and I think that there is a sense that he becomes this kind of blank in the center of the film, yeah, because he's he is this larger than life character, but also he doesn't feel larger than life. He doesn't really. feel larger than life. He feels pretty small. I mean, like one of the kind of. It's a it's a good joke in the film, but also maybe exemplifies a problem is when uh, Pu Tang records a, a hit single, and he records it by turning down all the levels, right. on the producer's thing, you know, and then sings a silent song, right? right? And it becomes a huge hit, and right. that kind of explains the character perfectly, right? In he that has nothing to say, he has nothing to say, and also that he is this kind of symbolic thing emptiness that they
0: never filled in. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, yeah, it's a it's a good point. No, he. <laughs> He doesn't quite stand up to being the lead of a movie, and you're right. I think you summed it up really well. The character is supposed to be this larger-than-life icon that is adored by millions, and he can barely carry his own 75-minute movie, and when he's surrounded by all these much more charismatic actors, he does kind of seem to recede into the background. You could argue, I guess, that maybe that's part of the point because this, the, the other point of making a, quote-unquote, a hit song where it's just silence is, is this idea that you know pop culture is very manufactured and is, is empty of substance and kind of bland and all of the people who become superstars uh, are that way. And so maybe you could argue that he's, he's kind of that way on purpose. Uh, that's i think you're being very generous if you yeah. make the argument though
1: i do i do think that there's a kind of genial good naturedness to the film as a whole that i i did like i mean even in terms of Pootie tang uh willing to go seduce or uh with pie the this kind of uh plain daughter of uh, a rural sheriff just to make her feel better you know uh, i think that there's a kind of uh like why not to that and to the fact that he almost ends up
0: marrying her <laughs> yeah but then there's also the scene where he has that sort of groupie who comes along mm-hmm. and he, he yeah he leaves out a, a, a bowl of, of milk, milk and, and she then stays, she drinks yeah. it like a cat i mean yeah, that I'm not actually sure to, was not that's sort of the opposite of what you're describing yeah that scene made me kind of uncomfortable and well, i thought I that mean, was like, awful
1: in that i agree i mean like in that his character Is presented as supposed to be like this ladies' man, though. Right. But from the whole, in the whole film, it seems like a lot of the time he's acted upon in that way. You know what I mean? He's pursued by all of these characters, including Wanda Sykes, including Jennifer Coolidge, whose character is such a weird twist on this, like, uh, Stifler's mom, Cooper. Yeah. Like, I, I, did i did like actually that her ev- like every scene in which she seduces someone is basically this act of terrible violence i think there's even a scene of her with robert vaughn where she has like his legs thrown around her waist which <laughs> yes, is, there like, is yeah yeah it's but, not and, funny. Like, the idea of that as a twist on the like femme fatale is it's
0: so strange but it's pretty funny yeah all right well we, we, let's wrap this up with just this question you know because putty tang was a huge flop when it came out it's taken on this sort of Cult status. It hasn't become like you know huge cult film, but it has a, a small but very vocal following. Does it deserve it?
1: I don't think it's fully successful as a film. I think it has a lot of great weird moments. we didn't even mention maybe one of my favorite ones, which is a standoff between Pootie Tang and um, Dirty D. Dirty D. In which they kind of move closer and closer and closer together Until without ever moving their legs. Yeah, um, very funny. <laughs> which is very funny. Yes, I, it has a lot of those moments that are so strange and. Delightful. I do not think it holds together as a film as a whole. No. But I think that weirdness counts a lot in terms of having a cult following. Right. And that is certainly powering it forward. And it also just has this cast of all of these comedians, um, so most of whom it's better not to mention just because it's nice to see when they show up in these roles. Yeah. You know, it's got a great pedigree. And I think that sometimes something that has a great pedigree that didn't work out entirely, uh, I mean, that's what cult followings are made for no
0: it's true i think it has a great first 15 minutes or so and there are some really inspired bits i don't think it holds up as a movie i mean i this to me would not be a cult film that i would hold up as a as a classic i think it's a an interesting failure i guess is more of what i would say and and i think i haven't looked on youtube but i would guess that probably most of the best parts are on youtube and that was that's probably how i would recommend appreciating it Watch the best scenes on YouTube. It's not like you're going to miss anything if you don't capture the whole narrative experience as a whole. I think the, the best bits work as little sketches, which is probably how they were originally envisioned anyway. So that's Pootie Tang, and it is available now on Netflix. Now it's time
1: for Behind the 8 Ball, in which we give you a rapid-fire countdown of three picks that are new to streaming – One, in this case, that's expiring soon, and one pick chosen blindly by number from our Netflix queues. We're only doing one expiring film this week since we're recording a little early. Matt's off to Fantastic Fest, uh, and there aren't that many expiring titles up yet, so uh, we went with just one each.
0: Right. So are you ready, Matt? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, three new films. Okay, first up, speaking of Fantastic Fest, is a film I saw at Fantastic Fest last year and really enjoyed. It's called Headhunters. It'll be available on Netflix starting on September 27th. It's a Norwegian film about an art thief and his relationship with his wife, who he feels inadequate towards, and so he constantly feels like he has to buy her things and steal her things because he can't afford their lifestyle. And it takes some interesting twists from there. Really nice little thriller. I think... uh, was under the radar, but worth a watch on Netflix. Next up, available on Fandor, is The Trial, Orson Welles' adaptation of the Kafka novel. I've actually never seen it, so I'm looking forward to watching it myself. Uh, that's on Fandor. And finally, a perfect segue from Kafka to <laughs> Jackass the Movie, available starting on October 1st on Netflix. A kafka experience, really, in all ways, I think. Uh, or not at all. But it's a really hilarious movie. I'm an unashamed fan supporter apologist of the jackass oeuvre i love all the movies the show everything i hope they make a hundred more i hope there's jackass 60 i I'll, I'll, i will have seen every single one the last one was fantastic so that's jackass the movie on October 1st on Netflix. Okay, one expiring film. Yeah, and this one is expiring because there is such a small supply. This one's expiring very quickly. If, you have, if you're listening to this show within the first few days only, you'll be able to catch it. Otherwise, unfortunately, you'll miss it. But we'll have more expiring stuff on our next episode. This is No Direction Home, a fantastic documentary by Martin Scorsese about Bob Dylan, really an essential uh, documentary about his life and work. It's expiring on September 26th. You don't have a lot of time, but if you're hearing this and it's still available, check it out. All right, and one from your queue. You gave me number nine, which this week is not as embarrassing, thankfully. (laughs) It's the film The Catechism Cataclysm. Uh, It's from Todd Rohall. It's described on Netflix as, After his relationship to the church sours, a young priest and his high school pal take a canoe trip where they recall their glory days in rock bands. But they realize they're lost as darkness falls and the night begins uh, to bring bizarre turns of events. And it stars Steve Little from Eastbound and Down, a show that I really like and a performer on that show that I really like. So I'm looking forward to checking that out. Okay, are you ready for your countdown, Allison? I am ready. Okay, let's start with three new releases. Okay, the first one is a film that
1: I haven't seen yet and I'm really glad that it's streaming because I'm really looking forward to seeing it. It is The Tin Drum, 1979 film streaming on Hulu. It's a film adaptation of the novel of the same name by Gunter Grass, winner of the Palme d'Or, winner of the best foreign language film Oscar, uh, about a boy named Oscar who decides to stop growing at the age of three and manages it through either an injury or force of will. And it kind of takes them through the war and a lot of uh, interesting themes. So that is The Tim Drum. It is on Hulu. Next is shooting Robert King, 2008 documentary that's streaming on Netflix, and a really I like this documentary a lot. Actually, it's uh, directed by Richard Perry, and it's about an American photojournalist, uh, the name of the title, who, and it follows his career for like 15 years as he starts off this like complete uh, novice and kind of an idiot who just ventures into Bosnia and does all of these unsafe things and becomes uh, an award-winning photojournalist and also. Uh, Develops a lot of problems because of it. I covered Sarajevo and Grozny, uh, and it really delves into ideas of what the obligation of a war journalist is and you know and also just what the price is of witnessing these images so that's shooting Robert King on Netflix and last but not least uh, Revenge season one is available on Netflix this is a um, modern day reimagining of the Count of Monte Cristo set in the Hamptons starring Emily Van Camp, Madeline Stowe, Gabriel Mann uh, I would say this is a guilty pleasure but I don't feel his name is Van Camp? Emily Van Camp That's amazing. And I, you know, I would say this is a guilty pleasure, but I don't feel guilty. Why feel guilty? All right. Uh, It is a really kind of uh, very fun, enjoyable, somewhat ridiculous uh, drama filled with twists and betrayal. It's trash. It is not trash.
0: (laughs) All right. Uh, do you have your one expiring title? I do.
1: This is another one I haven't seen, but I've actually really been meaning to, so I'm glad that it's on Netflix because it stars my favorite, Tom Hardy. It is the masterpiece classic 2009 Wuthering Heights, uh, which was filmed for British television, uh, starring Tom Hardy as Heathcliff and Charlotte Riley, who I believe is now his fiancée as Kathy, um, based on the Emily Bronte book. And this is a, a peek at Hardy kind of before, as he was just sort of starting to break big. Uh, you know, Inception, I think, was uh, uh, had not yet come out when he shot this. So, uh, you know, then now he's, of course, uh, a big star. So it's always interesting to see someone on the cusp of uh, of breaking out. And that is Wuthering Heights. It is expiring October 1st from Netflix. Okay, and one random film from your queue? Uh, you picked number 32, which is The Manx Man, 1929, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's last silent film. I had, I think, I just went and had added at one point all of Hitchcock that was on that I hadn't seen uh, to my queue. So this is a film about a poor fisherman who uh, heads out to the seas in hopes of earning enough money to impress the father, father of his girlfriend. Uh, then he is possibly lost at sea. So um, you know, always, I, I don't haven't seen a lot of that early
0: Hitchcock. I'm so. sure I'll be watching that one real I'm soon. I'm sure I
1: will too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna rush right over yeah. as soon as I'm
0: finished with rewatching Revenge season yeah. one. Okay, well, it's time to go through our listener's choice options for our next episode. Uh, let's start with the first one, Allison. What is it?
1: It is the tall man. Uh, which is available on VOD on September 25th, and also, as far as we can tell, on streaming on Netflix. We so believe, yeah. We, we could believe, be mistaken,
0: but we believe it's actually going to be available on Netflix on the same day.
1: Yeah, which is a pretty quick turnaround because this film was in theaters not very long ago. Like a month ago. Yeah, so this is uh, the new fi- new film from Pascal Logier, who directed Martyrs, which if you've seen it, uh, you, you know if you've seen it. It is maybe, I, I think for me, the kind of, the be all end all of torture porn films. Uh, this is uh, also a genre film of sorts, uh, though I, n- neither of us has seen it yet. It's not in the same vein. Uh, stars Jessica Biel, um, yeah. and it's about a mother whose child goes missing and then goes investigating the legend of the tall man, who is supposedly this minute bull, uh, yes, or a person who abducts children. Oh, yes. So that is the tall man. It's available on VOD. And possibly I was screaming. confused.
0: I don't think Manute Bowl is a, is a kidnapper. Let's just put that out there. Okay, why don't you tell us about the next film? Okay, the next film, which doesn't star Manute Bowl either, is Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which will be available on Netflix starting on October 1st from 1982. Directed by Nicholas Meyer. And this movie has been getting a lot of... uh, I've been seeing some articles about it, some discussions on other podcasts about it, because it's the 30th anniversary. And if that doesn't make you cry, then you're not as old as I am. But it's the 30th anniversary of Star Trek II. Um, It's the 30th anniversary of the summer of 82, which had a whole retrospective at the Alamo Drafthouse this summer. It was an amazing summer for movies that summer. They had Conan. They had Road Warrior, Rocky III, Poltergeist, E.T., The Thing, Tron, Class of 1984, The Dark Crystal... And Star Trek Two, They all came out the same summer. That's kind of insane. It was a drastic departure from the first Star Trek movie in that it was actually pretty good. It was a direct (laughs) sequel to an episode from the original series. Allison, that episode was called, of course...
1: <laughs> I can't believe you're looking at me uh, and asking me that question. Oh, uh, I,
0: I, I was just I know. It's called Space Seed and it had Ricardo Montalbán as Khan and he returned for the film and as as you may be able to tell from that joke, Allison has never seen Star Trek. I have too, not seen have it. you seen any Star Trek movies? No. Did you see the, I've seen. Like, did you the see the J.J. Newer... Abrams one? Yes. Okay. I've seen like
1: some of the newer ones, but I have not. You saw seen... some of the next generation yes. ones.
0: Okay. So you have never seen any of the original series movies. That is correct. All right. Well, I just thought I would. I just. This is me being selfish. I just want to make Allison watch Star Trek II, and I'd love to hear what she thinks of it. And I do think it would be interesting, to, because it, there has been so much discussion about that summer, the summer of 1982. Maybe we could even have that as our theme. We could do movies mm. from that year as our theme on that show. That could be kind of fun. So a look back and considering how that movie is aging could be pretty fun. Star Trek Two. Available on Netflix on October 1st.
1: Okay, and our last film is also going to be available on Netflix. It is From Russia with Love, which will be available on streaming October 1st. Directed by Terrence Young. It's the second Bond film. And, uh, you know, it's one in which Bond is trying to track down a Russian decoding advice before Spectre finds it first.
0: He needs to get the lector exactly
1: sean connery as bond
0: uh he's, they could tell from my impression i it just wanted exactly to be clear
1: in I case that they all knew. I'm, yeah okay it's that good uh-huh um it's you know russian girl that bond is linked with then there's also uh there's poison tipped shoes and the usual classic bond hijinks and uh you know i we picked this in particular because we were interested in there was a an essay published recently um from Matt Zoller Seitz on the press play blog in which he wrote about attending a screening in which a lot of people kind of tittered at the film young were, people watching
0: were, it were kind of not they were just laughing at the movie as if it was really dated and cheesy sort of what we were saying about like looking at Star Trek and seeing how it's aging exactly apparently they felt that this movie was completely dated and silly and they were just sort of I believe the expression would be taking the piss out of it essentially
1: right and so he wrote a response to basically be like if you it's your problem if you can't put yourself in the right mindset to accept this film. So I thought that would be an interesting thing to talk about. Also interesting to revisit this. And of course, the new Bond film, uh, Skyfall, which is directed by Sam Mendes, it's coming out November 9th. And it is really interesting to look at how Bond has changed over the years. Yeah,
0: So there's definitely some themes there we could do. We could do Bond, we could do spy movies, we could do all sorts of things there. So there's a lot of potential there as well.
1: Yes. So that's from Russia with Love and Netflix.
0: All right, well, which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting streaming video unit? Send your pick to feedback at FilmSpottingSVU.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at FilmSpottingSVU.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, October 1st at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, Twitter.com slash FilmSpottingSVU, and you'll have all that week to watch the film. And then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which will be on or around Monday, October 9th.
1: FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The FilmSpottingSVU remixed theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. And we'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review that you pick. In the meantime, you can follow me and Matt on Twitter, Twitter.com slash Singer and Twitter.com slash Allison Wilmore. And you can follow the show at Twitter.com slash FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer,
0: Sada